Good morning. Turn your turn in your Bibles to Psalm eight. Psalm eight. I'll read that in just a few moments here. Psalm eight. One of my uh, favorite movies is. Gosh, you guys really don't know me well. Try again. I'm thinking of the movie Amadeus. Okay? I mean, I don't... You think you know people. So one of my favorite movies is Amadeus. It was made in the 80s, and it's about the life of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. I was a classically trained violinist growing up, and so I uh, fell in love with his music, And Mozart, as probably some of you know, was a fascinating man. He was a musical genius. He wrote his first piece at the age of five, his first full symphony at the age of eight, his first full opera at the age of 14. Okay, he was extremely prolific. He wrote about 600 pieces in his 35 years of existence. But friends, did you know that Mozart has a dark side? He was likely... An alcoholic, depressed one minute and feverishly driven the next minute. He was constantly seeking the approval of his father, which hardly ever came. He was horrible with his money, in debt much of his life. His marriage was in shambles. In the Austrian court, he was equally known for his crude humor as much as he was known for his music. He died at 35, a broken, discouraged man, and what was his immediate legacy? An embittered wife with a mound of debt. That is Mozart. Extraordinarily brilliant, extraordinarily broken. I wonder whether that sounds familiar. None of us have Mozart's capacities, but he does give us kind of this exaggerated picture of all of humanity. We are all gods, lowercase g, and we are all monsters, people with uncanny God-given abilities to do amazing things, and we've got this drive and so forth, but also people with uncanny tendencies to be and to do the worst of things. Consider this, the same week in March of this year where U.S. US astronomers identified an ultra-massive black hole, likely the largest ever discovered. So this is 2.7 billion light years from Earth. That was the same week our country mourned over the Nashville school shooting. How can so much ugliness exist within a world that has so much potential? The answer lies, I believe, as we think about our psalm this morning, which presents a portrait of true humanity, humanity the way God intends, and true humanity relates rightly to its creator, God. You see, friends, our deepest problem isn't depression or debt or anxiety or murder or selfishness. We have a worship problem. We have a worship disorder. This is what we're going to start to see as we walk through Psalm 8. So let's read this together. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 8. 
Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of this psalm, hopefully this sermon, in a sentence. You'll see it on your screen. Marvel at God's stunning plan to glorify himself through little old us. Marvel at God's stunning plan to glorify himself through little old us. This psalm helps us to build a comprehensive anthropology, anthropos, man, Ology, study of, so the study of man. And as we'll see, Christian anthropology is actually rooted in the worship of God. I want you to notice the book ends. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your, is your name in all the earth. I, I hear of, uh, kind of the way I've memorized this past kind of traditional renderings of this. How majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what I hear when I look at verse one. I wonder what you hear. But I want you to notice these book, bookends, not only in verse 1, but also in book 9, we see this psalm is rooted in the worship of God. I want to point out as we walk through this four invitations to marvel, four invitations to marvel. Here's the first one. So we put our eyes on verses 1 and verse 9. Marvel at God's pervasive glory. Now, friends, before we can talk about what humanity is all about, we need to understand who God is. I'm reminded of how John Calvin began his great Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon the face of God. You kind of wonder if Calvin was kind of meditating on this particular psalm, because that's the exact path that David leads us down, David, the author of this psalm. So anthropology doesn't begin with humanity. It begins with God. Notice verse 1, the first three words, Lord, our Lord. That doesn't mean God, our God. He's not kind of repeating himself there. Notice it says, O Lord, and those letters are in capitals, it's a reference to Yahweh. This is his personal name, his covenant name. And, and if Israel was reading and kind of singing through the psalm, if they kind of double-clicked on that word, Lord, Yahweh, it would open up a lot of things for them. Here is the God who, by his own will and power, existed before this universe came into being. He is the uncreated creator, the self-existing one, and he is absolutely complete in himself. In other words, he is not needy. The Godhead is full in himself as we've been learning in the Trinity class. 
And from this place of super abundance, he overflows in creating this world and offering us love, which is why this God, notice, is our Lord. Do you see that? Lord, our Lord, Israel's Lord. And that word there for Lord, the second Lord, is Adonai, which simply means sovereign one or master. So it's like he's saying, great God, this this great God of the universe, you are our king. God isn't aloof. He is transcendent, but he is utterly personal. And still, I want you to notice even further as we look at verse 1, this God is for the entire world. Notice kind of the parallelism in the second and third lines of verse 1. Says how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. The point is everywhere, everywhere God's name, his majestic name is known. Israel's God has a majestic name. And, and by the way, by name, he, he's referring to God's character and his reputation and so forth. And this name isn't private or personal. It goes public. It's spread everywhere. This is what God's glory means, in fact. Here's a definition. I've shared this with you guys before. What does God's glory mean? It's the public expression and appreciation of God's majestic character. I'll say that again. What does God's glory mean? It's the public expression, but also appreciation of God's character. Right now, LeBron James and Steph Curry are battling it out in the NBA playoffs, right? And these are two of the greatest players ever. Well, let's just say you've only heard of their stats. You've only heard your buddies kind of tell you, hey, this LeBron is great and and the Steph character, he's really good. Well, that's one thing, but their glory, their glory is displayed publicly on the court, right? That's when you can actually, you know, start to see and enjoy and appreciate their glory. You can't just kind of read it in a book. So friends, where do we see God's glory? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 reminds us that everybody knows of the glory of God, that no one has an excuse. Friends, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Everywhere we look, we see sights and sounds that remind us of the majesty of God, whether it's sitting on your front porch, or in our case this morning, sitting here at church and hearing the booming of a thunderstorm, or coming to church and sitting in your seats or standing up and singing unto the Lord and worshiping the Lord and and doing that with your brothers and sisters. Maybe you experience some of the grandeur of God there. Or maybe you're encountering something of God's glory at the birth of your child or your grandchild. Or maybe you're, you're in awe of, of certain kind of biological realities that are out there. I think of the, the deep sea dragonfish. It's, it's far on the bottom of the ocean, and it's got these little lights, you know, that, that are kind of pointing out and helping it to, to travel. Friends, God's majestic name is everywhere. Majesty is what drove Carl Boberg to pen these words. Familiar words, hopefully. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. Friends, the cupboard isn't bare for us. God's glory is throughout the earth. The question then, of course, for you and for me is, do we apprehend it? Do we appreciate it? Do we enjoy it? Do we marvel alongside David? David, notice, is is worshiping here, isn't he? 
He's not just kind of taking notes. This isn't a textbook kind of lesson for him. He is worshiping the Lord as he's considering these things. So friends, what is the first pillar in our anthropological studies this morning? We are made to worship someone. We were made to enjoy something more transcendent and glorious than us. And that means, I want you to hear me now, this is important, humanity only makes sense when we relate to God like the earth relates to the sun. We revolve around him. Okay, so when we put ourselves in that central position or when we put something else in that central position, our humanity no longer makes sense. There's a sort of disordering that comes in our lives. There's a sort of dehumanizing effect that comes about. In other words, you are most human. You are most yourself when you are functionally, actually worshiping God. We say it the other way around, too. You are least human. You are least like yourself when you are not functionally worshiping the Lord. When you start to kind of stifle this Davidic apprehension of God's glory, what is left, friends? Well, I would say it's misery and madness. I grew up in the 90s and 2000s enjoying uh, alternative rock and roll. And, uh, you know, I, I think about a lot of my, you know, musical heroes from that era, I, I, you know, these, these rock stars, and, and many of them, many of these lead singers, they committed suicide, whether it's Kurt Cobain or Lane Staley or Chester Bennington or most recently, one of my favorites, Chris Cornell. How many artists through the centuries have searched for meaning but have come up empty and suicidal, whether it's Van Gogh or Rothko or Arbus? Friends, without this sort of Davidic apprehension of the glory of God, uh, the kind of expression that we see here in David in verse 1 and verse 9, without this, what's left is only misery and madness, which will eventually lead to suicide. Friends, true hope is, is found in this life in God. True hope in this life comes not from believing in yourself more or from following your heart more or from adjusting your productivity levels or from kind of modifying your behavior. It comes from apprehending and worshiping and enjoying God. Now, how do we do this? Well, there's like a thousand applications. That could be a whole sermon, so we're not going to do that. Let me give you just three really quick applications, okay? The first one I've been talking about for a while in the last few weeks, but I, I, just, I just think it's so important. And, and by the way, you guys sang so well this morning. It encouraged me deeply, it encouraged me deeply. So thank you for that. And that's the first application. How do we want to worship God? How do we cultivate a spirit of worship? It's through singing. So let me encourage you to take the songs and the hymns from Sunday morning and bring them into your week. I was driving um, uh, to my daughter's dance class, and I was kind of working through in my head something, something just a little, little moment of discouragement in my heart. And, and the Lord brought to mind, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. That's exactly what I needed to hear. The Lord wanted to encourage me. So learn to bring songs and hymns that are rich with gospel truth into your lives. Make, make those songs and hymns the soundtrack of your weeks. Number two, find evidences of God's grace. God is working in 10,000 ways in your life and my life. 
we may only see three or four or five of those ways, right? But the Lord is working, and so look for evidences of grace where the Lord is working in you or your spouse or your children or your friends, because that's going to nurture a thankful heart to the Lord, right? And then number three, obey the Lord. If there's one thing that's going to short-circuit and cut off your worship of the Lord, it is disobedience. But when you obey the Lord in small ways, when you start to cultivate and kind of invest in submitting yourself to the Lord, bring yourself under the Lord, obeying Him, right? That's going to strengthen your worship muscles. So let me encourage you to obey. Okay, number two, the second thing, second kind of invitation to marvel. We see here in verse two, marvel at God's upside-down strength. Marvel at God's upside-down strength. God not only displays His majesty, you'll notice in creation, He does so, starting in verse 2 and following, in us. That's what this next point is all about. And what we see here in verse 2 is completely counterintuitive. Let me read this verse to you to remind you. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you, God, have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. This verse is astounding. God uses baby talk to overcome his enemies and glorify himself. That's what this verse says. He uses the weakest, the simplest of people to overthrow the strongest and most powerful. Now, this is an important perspective at this point in the book of Psalms because it helps us to understand why God's anointed king suffers like he does. Let's do some review going back to Psalm 1. We saw the blessed man who David strives to be. In Psalm 2, we saw that this blessed man of Psalm 1 is also the anointed king of God. And then Psalms 3 through 7, what do we see there? We see the anointed king David struggling. He's oppressed. He's got enemies around him. So what do we see here in, in Psalm 8? Well, God allows his king to be weak, to be oppressed, to struggle, so that God's power will shine forth. There's lots of examples of this in the scriptures, right? I mean, you think about David himself as he's facing Goliath the giant, and he's got pebbles, and Goliath's got a sword, and, and Goliath's huge and powerful, and he's a champion, he's experienced, and David is this wee little boy, right? There's so many examples of seeming weakness overcoming worldly power. So many examples in the Bible. Nowhere, though, brothers and sisters, did it look like this more than the day Jesus, an innocent man of, and God's anointed king, hung on a cross. I mean, it surely looked like evil triumphed that day, right? I mean, it, it looked like Satan disgraced Jesus and mocked God. You know, that, that was the day when Satan kind of held his fist up to God and said, hey, look at the cross. You are weak, God. I've got you now, God. But friends, it was, it was right then, it was in that very moment when Jesus took our guilt upon himself, hanging there naked and weak, that was when Satan was defeated. The place where Satan thought he outmaneuvered God was the same place that God actually outmaneuvered him, making a fool out of Satan, turning what looked like Satan's triumph into the very means of his defeat. Friends, God works his strength through David. God did exponentially more in David's son 
Jesus. And what God did with David and Jesus, he does with us. He uses little babies to establish his strength. I want you to think about this, friends. God creates power and might for himself from the lisping, stammering, learning tongues of young children. He doesn't establish strength through the the lips of the wise and the powerful and the aged. He demonstrates his glory most clearly, clearly through little boys and girls. And I know some of you are here this morning. You've got some fourth graders and fifth graders and sixth, et cetera, et cetera. I want you to know something this morning. You are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. I want you to read verse 2. Maybe you've got your Bible in front of you. And I want you to notice what God can do through you. The universe is stunned at the matchless character of God when little children pray before bedtime or mumble the simple truths of God or sing quietly at home. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This should be a huge encouragement to young moms here this morning and who spend their days wiping noses and cleaning up spills and folding little hands before meals and singing songs before bedtime. I want you to step back and look at the big picture, sisters. God is making his name majestic in this world through you. God is establishing strength in this world through your children as they learn to praise God. You know who else I think about when I read verse 2? I think about two men, both of them weak, both of them like little children. One was a dairy farmer from North Carolina. You might know him. His name's Billy Graham. Everybody thought he would amount to just about nothing. His fellow evangelists were, on paper at least, more gifted and accomplished than he was. The other man, as a young child, collided with a bread truck, and after receiving brain surgery, he had a permanent dent on his head. And this left him fearful and frail and weak throughout his life. And yet one day, this man would grow into such a spiritual giant with gravitas and great depth in his knowledge and fellowship of God that he would write the classic book, Knowing God. This is J.I. Packer. From a worldly perspective, these two men should not have been successful, right? But but God said, I'm going to use these babies to establish my praise and strength. I'm going to use these little infants to overthrow my enemies and bring people from darkness to light. I mean, think about what he did with Billy Graham and J.I. Packer. He gave Billy Graham such a megaphone to proclaim Christ that thousands became Christians through his word ministry, including, I know, some people in this room. He gave J.I. Packer such a platform to shape many of those new converts through his teaching and preaching and writing ministry. Friends, out of the mouth of toddlers, God establishes strength. When this world tells us, as it often does, that everyone has a right to a life that is easy and comfortable and relatively pain-free, a life that enables us to discover and display and deploy our own strengths, the world, when it says that, is twisting things, twisting God's design of us. That was not the life of Christ. That was not the life of Paul. It is not the life God calls us to. 
Brothers and sisters, weakness is the way. Take it from somebody who in the last two years has particularly experienced his own weakness in acute ways. Weakness is the way. Listen to J.I. Packard as he's thinking about this very topic. Quote, the way of true spiritual strength leading to real fruitfulness in Christian life and service is the humble, self-distrustful way of consciously recognized weakness. So friends, do you feel weak today? Do you feel like a nobody today? Perfect. You're qualified. Has God given you tasks that overwhelm you, that seem impossible to you, that kind of make you feel like you're just kind of barely treading water in life? Good. <laughs> you know, if you've got a, a little nobody voice and a little nobody brain and a little nobody skill set, but you're praising God and you're dedicated to his purposes, then he is establishing his strength through you. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging? Okay, so how does this kind of fill out our picture of Christian anthropology? So first of all, we've learned humanity is not only meant to worship, we've learned that, but also that our weakness actually amplifies our worship. Number three, number three, marvel at God's shocking mindfulness. Look at verses three and four. You know, you can almost picture David uh, as a shepherd boy on his back in, in some clear Palestinian nights, right? And he's taking in all the stars. Um, night skies in that region of the world are typically crystal clear. And David may have, may have remembered one of those evenings when he wrote these words, verses 3 and 4 in particular. I don't know about you, but I've got fond memories laying on my back in, you know, in the, the dunes of Traverse City up in Michigan, taking in a full night sky. And, 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 and there's nothing like that that makes you feel quite so small, right? As you're taking it in, as you're trying to think of, okay, I'm this, I'm this dude on a planet and there's the sun and the sun is like small relative to all these other stars out there, right? Mahalia Jackson, she's an African gospel singer. She once sang these words, who made the mountains and who made the trees? Who made the rivers that run to the seas? Who put the stars in that starry sky? Somebody bigger than you and I. Friends, here's some more perspective, okay? Our little home subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy, has about 100 million, excuse me, 100 billion stars in it. That's one galaxy, okay? And the universe, apparently, according to scientists, contains tens of billions of galaxies. So scientists estimate at least 10 billion trillion stars. So that's like a one with 21 zeros after it, okay? And according to verse 3, look at verse 3 again. According to verse 3, God has set each of those 10 billion trillion stars in their place. And according to Psalm 147, God calls each of those stars by name. 10 billion trillion star names. It's absolutely wild, right? And all of this, according to David in verse 3, is the work of God's fingers. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. Friends, keeping stars from nuclear-like explosions 
are not rough, sweaty, work for God, like heavy construction or road building. It's more like little children that are trying to build something with Lego blocks. It's that easy for God. I mean, think about the, the normal, simple things we do with our fingers and hands. You know, we make dinner and we throw a baseball and we write an email and we pull out weeds and all kinds of things, right? Well, friends, creating and organizing and sustaining the universe is that easy for God. And somewhere in that vast universe in which God effortlessly moves his fingers to sustain every star, you and I are situated on a tiny planet and we're chewing our fingernails and worried about tomorrow and planning our summer vacations, right? Friends, we are so small. We're just seemingly inconsequential, right? I mean, a, a little tiny drop in a vast ocean. Who are we to this great God? What can we offer him? No wonder David asks this question in verse 4. What is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? I mean, why would God care for us? Apparently, God isn't just mindful of every star and planet. He's mindful of tiny little you and tiny little me. He not only calls every star by name, he calls every single one of us by name. He takes special notice of us. He has a high regard for us. He turns his gaze from stars that go supernova to wipe our snotty noses and pull us out of the pit and put our feet on firm grounds. Friends, this is our God. He is transcendent, he is glorious, and yet he is also imminent and utterly personal and intimate. Dana Tierney, a self-proclaimed atheist, she wrote an intriguing New York Times piece uh, a few years back. It was about her son, actually. And her son, at the age of four, started asking questions about God, which led to this real, growing, vibrant faith in Jesus. See, in his teen years and as he got into his college years. So in this article, she describes the difference between how Christians and non-Christians view the world. She says this, when Christians walk along a stream, they don't just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. I just see a babbling brook. I don't see anything more. You know, if you're an atheist or a skeptic, I think her words would make sense to you. Most non-Christians, just like tyranny, have the same thought Carl Sagan once had. He said, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. That's it, just the cosmos. And he was this diehard atheist and, and wonderfully gifted scientist and secularist. But he didn't have a grand story that oriented his life. No God, no meaning in life, except the scientific exploration of the cosmos. In other words, his main mantra, or, the, or kind of the, the motivational force in his life, was simply curiosity. That's what drove him. That's as far as his worldview would take him. But I want you to notice what Psalm 8 tells us, what Psalm 8 invites us into. Friends, what if there is a great and glorious God? And what if this great and glorious God created this grand, magnificent, vast universe all to display his majesty? And what if God created this grand, majestic, wonderful universe to highlight his shocking mindfulness? of us. This God? You mean, you mean the God who created this many stars? 
You mean the God who holds them in its place? The, the God who sustains my very existence and your very existence? This great and glorious God takes notice of me? Little old me? This is mind-numbing, heartwarming stuff, isn't it? Okay, so we've gathered kind of these three pillars of Christian anthropology. Number one, we are worshipers. Number two, our weakness amplifies our worship. Number three, the one we worship is mindful of us. Let's look at the fourth invitation here. One more, marvel at God's crowning of humanity. Let me read these verses, verses five through eight. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. I want you to notice, first of all, verse 5, we are crowned, it says, with glory and honor. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we are crowned with glory and honor. Sometimes the people we run into doesn't feel like they're crowned with glory and honor. Am I right or not? Glory and honor here probably refer to us being made in God's image, pulling from Genesis chapter 1. So bearing God's image means that we have this special status amongst God's creation. There's something different with us, something special, something worthy of honor. And so, yes, it is true. Every person you run into this week, glory, honor. <laughs> you know, your, your weird relatives, glory, honor. The person you dislike the most in this building, perhaps, glory, honor, right? <laughs> and that's a real privilege we want to con convey to people, right, and commend people with glory and honor, especially in view of a culture that doesn't always prize different sorts of people. Everyone has their people biases, right? I was just kind of poking at a few of them. Each of us has people we don't like, for example. But Psalm 8 pushes us, especially verse 5, to value all kinds of people. It pushes us to believe that the lives of aborted babies matter. The lives of girls trapped in sex trafficking matter. The lives of battered and abused women matter. The lives of bullied homosexuals matter. The lives of bullied police officers matter. The lives of black people who are oppressed and bullied, they matter. Every human being, this is what Psalm 8 verse 5 tells us, it reminds us that every human being is crowned by God with a special status. And therefore, we should value every person. And then notice verses 6 through 8, it, it kind of explains this special status more clearly. As God's image bears, we are given rule and dominion over the world. This also comes right out of Genesis chapter 1. We rule on God's behalf. We're kind of like his vice regents. Wherever we go, we bear his authority, and we rule this planet, and we spread his fame. Kind of makes sense. You don't see any fish fishing for men, do you? Right? This week, as maybe you prepare to grill out, you're not going to worry about a cow coming to hunt you. Right? No, you're going to eat some cow somebody else killed for you, right? And that's because we govern the animal kingdom. So you can enjoy that ribeye guilt-free. Can I get an amen? <laughs> so Psalm 8 reminds us that there is a pecking order. 
God has given humanity a sort of dignity, but also a sort of dominion that no other created thing has. So, so it kind of makes me wonder sometimes, how come Save the Whales and Save the Planet has more traction than Save the Aborted Babies, right? There's absolutely a place, by the way, within the Christian worldview for creation care. That's part of our dominion work, in fact. But Psalm 8 gives us a sense of proportion and priority with these things, doesn't it? People are just more important than whales. People are just more important than even, even this planet. Okay, so there you have it, friends. Four pillars of Christian anthropology, all kind of rooted in our worship. Hopefully you see that. But, but there's, of course, a problem with all of this. Man is not only marked by dignity, man is also marked by tragedy. Why is what we see in Psalm 8 not always what we see in this world? The world would say, well, we, we haven't involved enough. You know, just give it another 10,000 years and, and humanity is going to figure it out. The Bible says we are sinners. So Genesis 1 and 2 absolutely applies as we're thinking about humanity, but so does Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve's infractions brought this whole world into ruin. And later, Israel, who sang this song, they were supposed to embody these truths. They were supposed to be God's reboot humanity. But they failed to worship God. They, they failed to kind of rule over the planet the way they should. They went their own way, just like Adam and Eve, just like you and me. We are not proper rulers of this world. Our ruling is weak. It's tainted by sin. Now, I guess we can kind of subdue some animals and train them to obey us, but it's really superficial. If you don't believe me, just watch some, you know, bull riding at a rodeo or take a trip to Africa and hang out with the lions, right? Those animals aren't really interested in submitting to the humans around them. <laughs> We're not really ruling this planet, are we? Because we're all little Mozarts. Our sin has spoiled things. Thankfully, this is the end of the story. I want you to turn with me. So grab your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to see, see something here. Um, Psalm 8 was quoted four times, and it has other kind of allusions in the New Testament. But here's one of the most profound uh, connections, I think, Whenever you read an Old Testament passage, you want to ask the question, what aspect of the gospel is anticipated in this passage? Well, thankfully, in this case, we have a New Testament writer who's answering that very question. Psalm 8 is quoted, as you'll see in just a minute here, in Hebrews chapter 2. So I'm going to start reading in verse 5. For he, that's God, has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about, but someone somewhere has testified. Yeah, someone somewhere. David. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything sub subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Friends, what Hebrews 2 teaches us is that where we failed, Jesus succeeded. The first humanity, Adam and Eve, they failed. 
The reboots with Israel failed. The nations at large have failed down through the ages. And so God had to step in and he had to do it himself. He had to restart humanity himself with his son, Jesus. That's why Jesus is called in the book of Colossians, the firstborn. He is the firstborn of God's new humanity. He's the leader of God's new creation. Why? Because he did what we could not. He perfectly worshiped and ruled and spread God's fame throughout the earth. So look at verse 8 here. He tasted death on behalf of every sinner, according to verse 9. And after he had suffered, he was given honor and glory. Also, verse 9, he did what we could not do. Listen, friends, we may not control creation, but he does. Jesus embodies Psalm 8 perfectly. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope you're hearing the message that Dana Tierney and Carl Sagan never heard. If rocks and mountains and sunsets don't do it for you, then let me encourage you to consider Jesus. Stand in awe of Jesus. Jesus is is the only human being who isn't a mixed bag, right? He's not like part God and part monster. No, he is God, and he embodies perfect humanity. He even restores monsters to being truly human. Many people in this room would be in that category. How do we do that? You repent of your sins. You trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. And you start to follow him. You start to imitate him because he's the firstborn of God's new humanity. Friends, this is why there's so much hope for us. So much hope for us. It's found in Jesus alone. He has started this new humanity and he's inviting you to join him. And when you do, when you become a Christian, you can read this psalm as part of God's new humanity in Christ. You can read this psalm and you can say to yourself, I am a new man in Christ. I'm a new woman in Christ. And therefore, with the Spirit's help, I can worship with David. I can marvel with David. And I can live out what David celebrates here in this psalm. I can can be truly human through Jesus. So brothers and sisters, may the God who has planned to glorify himself through little of us, may he give you everything you need this week to live out your new humanity in Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment now of silence to reflect upon this passage